Amen. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you all today. And let's try that again. Good morning, church. I want to make sure you're awake. All right. If you've got your Bibles, you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We've been working our way uh, through Ephesians. We're calling this uh, particular series Ephesians a Crash Course in Christianity. Read a story about uh, some guys that died in a car crash, three friends. And they end up at the gates of heaven for orientation. And they're all asked the same question. When you're in your casket and friends and family are mourning over you, what would you like for them to say about you? And one guy immediately responds, I want them to, I want to hear them say I was one of the great doctors of my time and a great family man. The second guy said, I I want to hear that I was a wonderful husband and a great school teacher who made a huge difference in the children of tomorrow. The last guy thought a moment, and then he said, I'd like to hear them say, look, he's moving. (laughs) Isn't that great? It's probably not a true story, by the way. But I like it anyway. But that caused me to think about this. You know, most people will fight tooth and nail to stay along as long as they possibly can in this world. Why is that, do you think? I think there's a whole variety of reasons. Some people are, uh, let's face it, they're in love with this world. And if they experience anything good in this life, then they want to they cling to that good. They don't want to give it up. Some people are naturally fearful of dying. They don't know what will happen next or how it might happen. And some people are not sure. They're just not sure if there's anything after this life. And so that uncertainty causes them to cling on to as long as they can because they're ignorant of the truth of eternity and what God has for us. I read a a story, this time a true story, about a helicopter pilot, a guy by the name of Ian McConnell, along with the rest of his air station crew, they were summoned at 4 a.m. on the morning of August 30th, 2005, to the Coast Guard Aviation Center in Mobile, Alabama. The center soon became one of the first bases of operation for Hurricane Katrina relief. McConnell and his crew were told to keep five helicopters airborne uh, for missions at all times around the clock, and they did that over and over and over. They made trips in and out around New Orleans. The first airborne relief teams arrived in the affected areas before any of the news crews, and they were completely unprepared for the devastation that they saw as they flew across. They saw a train track running parallel to the ocean, and it had been pushed inland 15 feet off of its gravel bed. They saw houseboats floating down Highway 90. They saw the entire city of New Orleans standing underwater. While McConnell's crew got right to work, airlifting stranded people from rooftops and out of windows and delivering them to the Superdome helipad. To their chagrin, though, they were only able to help a relatively few amount of survivors. And later in an interview, Mr. McConnell shared why. He said, on our first three missions, we saved the lives of 89 people and three dogs and a cat. But on the fourth mission, to our great frustration, we saved No one, but not for lack of trying. The dozens of people we attempted to rescue refused our help. They literally refused our help. Some people just said, bring us some food and water. 
We shouted back, you're trying to live in unhealthy, unsafe conditions. The water will stay high for a very long time. We warned them. And still, the people refused to leave. Mr. McConnell said, I felt frustrated. I felt angry since we had used up precious time and fuel and had put our teams at risk during each of these rescue attempts. I felt like the people were ungrateful. But in truth, he said, they didn't know how desperate their situation really was. And isn't that the sad truth of our world today? Many people are already dead and they don't know it. That is, they are dead spiritually. Dead to God, dead to Jesus Christ. They are spiritually oblivious to the work of God. How could that be? Sin has made them dead. We're calling today's message a crash course on the gospel of grace. And we're going to focus on the gospel, the good news of God's grace. In fact, if we look carefully in our text of Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we'll find that that text contains the whole gospel message. And I want to show it to you today in just six words. In just six words, if we know what these words are and we understand what they mean, we will know the gospel. This can be a clear message that you can use for yourself, or if you already know it yourself, you can share with anyone that you meet. The six words come in three sets of two. Two words from verse 1, two words from verse 4, and a third uh, set of two from verse 8. And rightly understood, the whole gospel is in those six words. God made it simple, I think, so that anyone could understand it. And so all of us who know it can share it with someone else. So let's, let's listen in to today's text, and then let's begin looking at these simple and yet powerful truths from the Word of God. So I'm going to read for you Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. These are the words of the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesian Christian church. And he says to them, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, Paul writes, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Wow. So this passage here, verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians 2, is, is perhaps the most extensive statement in the Bible about God's grace. It's full of vital truths and inspiring promises and important words. But this morning, we're going to focus on just six words found in this text. And it all begins in verse 1 with two words. You were. You were. You were. These first two words describe our condition apart from God's grace. Grace is needed. The words you were describe not only what we used to be, but also describe the current condition of everyone in the world who does not know Jesus. That condition, as we will see in a few moments, is truly hopeless. Why do we need God's grace? Because all men and all women are by nature spiritually dead, separated from God. And so we must begin at this basic starting point for biblical theology. When God looks down from heaven and he looks at the whole world, it's kind of like he's looking at a, a cemetery. Think about that for a moment. All he sees are dead people. Almost every person is a corpse. And maybe above their headstone it's written, dead through sin. Dead through sin. But in what sense are human beings dead, even though they're alive? Well, it's, it's because of sin, isn't it? That we are separated from God. We're unable to know God personally, as we talked about last week. And we can't do anything about our condition. And to make matters worse, we are dead and we don't know it. Apart from Jesus, we don't know it. I want you to just think about this. Consider this scene. Maybe you're at a party. There's a lot of people standing around, lots of laughter, plenty of frivolity. And let's say next to you is standing a, a renowned doctor. And he kind of nudges you, and he points at a man out in the middle of the celebration, and he says, that man does not know it, but he has an incurable disease. And he will be dead within one week. What would you think about that guy out in the middle of the party enjoying himself? What would you make of his antics, his actions at that party? He's a dead man and he doesn't even know it. Do we understand that about people all around us that don't know Jesus? To be dead is a hopeless condition. You can't say to a dead guy, hey, Joe, get up and expect him to do anything. You can't talk the dead back to life. And so when God looks down from heaven and he sees all those that don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, he sees this vast graveyard filled with the living dead. Unbelievers who appear to be alive. They laugh, they talk, they plan, they fight, they marry, they dream of the future, and one day they die. But 
They are dead even while they're alive. Do we understand that? This is a serious situation. This is the human condition apart from God. And it's true of all people without exception. Apart from God's grace, we are all born dead. Which is why when God wants to save someone, he first finds a dead person. Notice back in verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. He's talking to Christians and he's saying, this is who you used to be. You're not that anymore, praise God. But it's who you used to be. And it's who your family and friends are apart from Jesus Christ. Following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? That's Satan. We either follow Jesus or we follow the prince of the power of the air. It's all of us before we came to know Jesus. You were. You were. Isn't it great, though, as Christians, we understand that in the past tense. That's who I used to be. Next, we come to two more significant words that can change our life. And we find them down in verse 4. But, isn't that a great word, but? But God. But God. These second two words tell us how grace works. The phrase, but God, announces the world's greatest rescue mission. Far greater than those helicopters flying over New Orleans. The greatest rescue mission of all, when the creator of this world took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ to perform the work of salvation. And that is to give away grace. But God. Grace given. I want you to just focus on those two little words for a moment. But God. But God. Our salvation hangs entirely on those two words. We were dead, but God. We were enslaved, but God. We were trapped, but God. We were self-destructing, but God. We were lost, but God. There's a few other words that follow that, that help us to understand this but God. And there in verses four and five, I want you to look at those words, love and mercy and grace. Let's just think about that for a moment. Love is that in God, that, that character in God, which causes him to reach out to people in benevolence, in love, in care. Love. Mercy is God withholding punishment that we deserve. And grace? Grace is the unmerited, the unearned favor of God shared freely. You could think of it this way. I want you to imagine a vast reservoir of water. Huge reservoir. And that represents God's love. It's unlimited. It's deep and it's wide. And it stretches as far as the eye can see. And as it begins to flow towards us, it becomes a river. A river of mercy. God's love is channeled down into a river of mercy. And eventually it cascades down upon us. And his mercy becomes just this torrent of grace. 
And these verses offer these three words which answer the desperate state of mankind. You were, but God. Love, mercy, grace. Here's a great way to remember the difference between mercy and grace. You can use this as you share these six words with your family and friends that don't know Jesus. You can help them to understand that mercy is God not giving us what we deserve, which is judgment. That's what mercy is. And grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Salvation. Freedom. The picture of a torrent of grace just rushing upon us is especially appropriate since grace always comes down from God to man. Grace Grace doesn't go that way. It doesn't go up towards God. It always comes down because God is the source of grace. Grace, by definition, means that God gives us what we don't deserve, what we could never achieve on our own, what we could never earn or do. Six words that can change your life. You were, but God, and finally, through Faith, through faith. The final two words explain how we can come into contact with God's amazing grace. It is through faith and only through faith. It's not faith plus the things that we do or our activity or or anything else. It is faith that brings the blessing of God to us. It is through faith that God's grace is received into our life. And so in these verses, we discover how grace is communicated to the human heart. It doesn't come by activity. It doesn't come by religion or by anything that we might conceive as earning God's grace. God's grace saves us through faith. Nothing more and nothing less. You see, something in us Something in us wants to add to God's free grace. Because it just doesn't make sense. Right? There's no such thing as a free lunch. Come on. We all know that. We're too smart to get caught up in that. We want to add something to God's grace. And it's humbling. It's very humbling to admit that we can do nothing. Nothing to earn our deliverance from sin. But any time we add anything to grace, you know what we do? We subtract from its meaning. We devalue the value of grace. Grace must be free or it's not grace at all. Free grace, of course. What other kind could there be? Three more words to take a look at here in verse 8. Grace, of course, saved, and faith. Grace is the source, right? Faith is the means, and salvation is the result. Or we could say that grace is that great reservoir, faith is the channel, and salvation is the stream that washes our sins away. And all of it is the gift of God. Even even the faith that lays hold of God's grace is a gift from God. Do we understand that? Our faith is not of us. It too is a part of God's gift. 
It comes from outside ourselves. We are not saved by what we do or what we think or by what we say, but by what Jesus Christ has done for us. God creates faith in the human heart the same way that he created this world. He, he found nothing, right? And he created something. In and of us, ourselves, we are nothing. We are nothing apart from God. And yet he allows faith to come into our life so that we might understand his amazing grace. Thus, every part of our salvation is a work from, of God from beginning to end. So the, the view of grace is hard. It's hard for good people to accept. It's hard for good people to accept because it means we have to, to give up our goodness in order to be saved. We have to admit that there's something wrong with us, that nothing that we have done matters in the least when it comes to be forgiven by God. God has designed our salvation so that he alone receives the glory. What would, what would heaven be like if, if you had to earn your way there? I, I was thinking it would be kind of like uh, going to one of those big fancy political dinners where everybody pays like $1,000 a plate and they're all standing around bragging about how much they gave to the candidate to help win the election. I gave $5,000. Somebody else says, oh, I gave $10,000. Big deal, I gave $50,000. Some guy comes along and says, move out of the way, guys. I own this guy. This candidate belongs to me. He's got a half a million of my money. And on it goes. That's what heaven would be like if we had to earn our way there. We might say, I was chairman of the Board of Elders. I assisted widows and blind children. I gave a million dollars to world missions. I, I changed dressings for burn victims. And as good as these things are, they will not help forgive even one sin. They won't save us. Wouldn't it be horrible to spend eternity just listening to people brag about what they did to earn their salvation? That would be miserable. Heaven would not be heaven at all, would it? I picture someone putting his arm around Jesus and said, you, you and me, Jesus, we did it. You died on the cross and I baked some cookies. Ah. Oh. Well, thank God that it's not like that. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the full price for your salvation, for my salvation. And it doesn't matter whether you bake the cookies or not. Jesus paid the price all by himself. Entrance into heaven, into eternity, into the kingdom of God is limited to those who trust Jesus Christ and him alone for their salvation. That's why God alone gets the glory in our salvation. Jesus did all the work, all of it, when he died on the cross. And so in the end, grace means that no one, no one is too bad to be saved. Do you believe that? I wonder if there are any truly bad people sitting in this room, listening on, on the live stream. I, I don't know. But if you're here, I have some good news for you. God specializes in saving really bad people. 
Do you have some things in your background that you'd be ashamed to talk about in public? Fear not. God already knows all about it. And his grace is greater than your sin, than your fear, than your embarrassment. The grace also means that some people, some people may be too good to be saved. What? Too good to be saved. That is, they might have such a high opinion of themselves that they think they don't need God's grace. Now, they might admit to some sins, to some faults, to some shortcomings, but they, they surely don't admit that they're spiritually dead. They may think they're, you know, off a little bit. But in comparison to him or her, they're doing okay. You see, they don't understand. They're truly dead. You see, God's grace cannot help us until we understand we are desperate to receive it. Desperate. So how do we find God's grace? We simply ask for it. We simply ask for it. That's all. It's really that simple. The more we feel our need for grace, the better candidate we are to receive it. We hold out our empty hands and we recognize apart from God, we are nothing, nothing. And he will not turn us away. This is the miracle, the wonder, the scandal, the shock of God's grace. It is, it is truly out of this world, right? God's grace is out of this world for no one in this world would have thought of something like this. It makes no worldly sense. But it is the good news for all of us. Free grace, free grace, free grace. We can shout it, we can sing it, we can tell it, and we can share it. And above all else, we must believe it. For in believing, we are saved. You know, when a, when a new baby enters the world, when a couple begins a new relationship through marriage, it's customary, isn't it, to celebrate the occasion? Gifts surrounding the, the, the people with acts of love. Well, have you ever thought about it? That in the same way, when, when people experience new life, when they begin a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, God also wants to extend some special gifts to them, to surround them with his love. One, one of these precious gifts is the gift of, of baptism. At its very essence, baptism is a wonderful, a beautiful expression of God's grace and our faith in him coming into contact. That's why we often use the term, which, by the way, was first used by Jesus in John chapter 3, born again. Born again. Our Baptism demonstrates God's offer of forgiveness and salvation. It holds the promise of new life, a fresh start, and a hope for a better tomorrow. Ushering in the gift of salvation and the gift of God's Holy Spirit coming to live in us. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful act. What a beautiful way 
for God to remind us, this is what I want to do for you. I want to help you to start all over, to be born again. You know, when we get to heaven, there's not going to be any contest to see who was the most deserving of God's grace. After all, we were all dead to start with, right? There's really only going to be one contest in heaven. When we look back and we see what we were before, and when we see the, the pit from which he rescued us, when we recall how confused we were, when we remember how God reached out and dragged us into his family and how we held on to his hand, and when we see Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us, the only contest will be to see which of us can sing the loudest, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. A wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. A few years ago, Michael Moore, 51 years old, confessed to a murder in New York City. His confession resolved a three-year-old cold case. The police had given up on finding the murderer. Moore would have gotten away with the slaying, but he encountered Jesus. He was born again. And as soon as he encountered Jesus, he realized Jesus wanted him to do the right thing. And so he immediately walked into the local precinct and announced that he had strangled a woman to death in 2004, three, three years before. And that Jesus Christ wanted him to turn himself in. One of the officers talking to the media later said, we wish Jesus would solve more of these cases. <laughs> Mr. Moore was relieved. He was emotional. He was just glad to get it off his chest. You see, when God's grace introduces us to a new life with him, part of that package is this special word called repentance. A change of heart that leads to a change in action. And we become friend of Jesus. Grace gets involved in our life and the truth of repentance reveals a fabulous world of life-freeing beauty because we can give it all to Jesus. His grace is enough. It's all we need the question is, how will we respond? You were, but God, through faith. Let's pray together.